You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. German authorities say they see nothing bad with Kaspersky software, but they're in the Western minority on this one. ISIS messaging looks as though it's shifting towards a different narrative. Hyatt discloses a significant credit card breach. Equifax and its competitor TransUnion both remove third-party malvertising code from their websites. And the dark web is in many ways a lot like the regular web, down to seasonal sales, customer reviews, and cat pictures. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 13, 2017. Germany's BSI, their principal information security organization, has said it's found no evidence confirming claims in the U.S. and Israel that Kaspersky software has been exploited for espionage by Russian intelligence services. This hasn't induced German security companies to slow down their marketing of their own products as made in Germany and, most importantly, not Kaspersky. But in Germany, at least, the pressure on Kaspersky is coming from the private and not the public sector. RT touts Kaspersky's recent deal to share threat intelligence on cybercrime with Interpol as more evidence that the Russian security firm is on the up-and-up and that U.S. strictures against the company's products are so much protectionist anti-Russian gamesmanship. Most other observers, however, are taking the reports that Kaspersky AV software was able to inspect and report on files resident in the systems it protected more seriously. Terrorism experts are predicting the next wave of ISIS inspiration as the caliphate continues to vanish from its core territories. Any expectations that the reality of battlefield defeat would mute or at least humble the jihadist group are, more on the rocks argues, bound to be frustrated. The old inspirational narrative of a just state ruled by godly men will indeed fade, but we can expect it to be replaced by one framed in terms of hijira, which is to say strategic retreat after glorious, dead-ender resistance to the infidel. The prophet himself conducted the first hijira in 622, when he and his followers left Mecca for Medina to escape persecution. The prophet, of course, returned, and Isis can be expected to announce that its own return and ultimate triumph are equally sure things. Hyatt discussed yesterday that 41 of its hotels in 11 countries around the world, China being most heavily affected, had suffered a breach that exposed credit card data. The breach was discovered in July, investigation just concluded. The chain is notifying affected customers directly. 
If you used a card at a Hyatt between March 18th and July 2nd of this year, you should be alert for fraudulent charges. This is the second breach Hyatt has sustained within the past two years. An earlier breach was disclosed in December of 2015. There's more bad news for Equifax. Not only was it reported that their massive breach lost driver's license information, among other personal data the company held, but its website was infected with bogus, malicious links. The floundering credit bureau yesterday said it had taken down some third-party code it was using to track website performance. The code was serving up malvertising, directing users to a bogus and malicious flash update site. Equifax says that its own systems weren't penetrated in this incident, which is no doubt true enough, and after all, if it's true, what else are they going to say? But at this point, there seems little the company can do to recoup the loss of trust it suffered. Equifax isn't alone in its industry either, with respect to suffering a bogus flash malvertising infestation. Rival credit bureau TransUnion was also afflicted. Malwarebytes found that TransUnion's Central American site was exhibiting the same problem, and that's not, as Malwarebytes deadpanned, something users want to have. TransUnion issued a statement similar to Equifax's. They've addressed the issue, and their systems weren't hacked. New York State's Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is investigating the Equifax breach. Schneiderman has also announced that he's opened an investigation of the security incident Deloitte suffered. Finally, we spent yesterday at Cyber Maryland, where the annual conference closed with an overview of the dark web from Terbium Labs' always interesting dark web expert Emily Wilson, who you've heard here on the CyberWire regularly. We'll summarize the takeaways she left us. The dark web works in repeatable and understandable ways. You can measure and track it. The fraud trade is alive and well, and it too operates in predictable ways. When Alpha Bay was taken down, the fraudsters went their way as if nothing had happened. If you weren't breached, but information about you was, it's still your problem. She was at pains to emphasize that the dark web isn't all criminal or even predominantly criminal. Nonetheless, a lot of criminal activity is conducted there. Contraband, especially drugs, are sold there, and personal information useful for fraud, especially credit card numbers and financial credentials, are also widely traded. In Wilson's view, the bad stuff is organized much the way the good stuff is. The dark web is still part of the Internet, and even its criminal precincts have the typical Internet features. Customer reviews, advertising, cat pictures, and even special offers. Those special offers on contraband are even structured like sales and timed seasonally, just like legitimate sales. Drug sales get their holiday boost around Halloween and New Year's Eve. Credit card numbers get the special offer Act Now treatment around Black Friday. So even in the cyber underground, sometimes the boss is on vacation and we've all gone crazy. Crazy for low prices. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the Senior Manager for Security Research and Development at Accenture Labs. Uh, Malek, you wanted to describe today a new attack surface involving software-defined network controllers. What's going on here? Thanks, David. Uh, Yes, so probably most of our listeners know that software-defined networking has been slowly changing the networking industry. We certainly see it uh, as Accenture without our, with some of our clients who are adopting the, the software-defined networking paradigm, uh, typically referred to as SDN. To Just to remind the listeners is, um, that SDN basically is a, a new networking paradigm that separates the control layer or the logical programmable control plane that manages the physical devices, which we refer to as the data plane. By doing that separation, uh, we're able to enable several new innovative use cases, uh, such as traffic engineering, uh, data center virtualization, dynamic network segmentation, or even some security use cases such as fine-grained access control and quarantining of uh, compromised devices. Now, a lot of people get excited about these new capabilities that SDN introduces, and they forget about the new attack surface that is brought by the SDN technology and the SDN controllers, which is you know, expected since now we're we controlling the network through software. The SDN controller is, is an application, is a piece of software, so it has its own bugs. So that introduces a new attack surface. But also the nature of SDN, which is asynchronous in nature, also introduces uh, the opportunity for race conditions to happen, for harmful race conditions that can be exploited by an attacker to launch an attack against the network, to compromise a service, to uh, even crash a service or even crash the entire network. Uh, Now, what has been demonstrated at Usenix Security is a way of launching this attack. 
where the attacker does not need to have access to the SDN controller itself to compromise the SDN controller itself. They don't need to have access to um, the network. All they need to have is a compromised device to launch the network into certain states that can cause a system crash, basically, for the SDN controller. And a system crash in that case means a denial of service attack against the network. So how do we protect against this sort of thing? A couple of things that can be done. These are new research areas. Uh, One of them, obviously, is to introduce more safety checks into uh, the SDN controller software and its applications. Uh, Perhaps have some deterministic execution runtimes for um, the functions that check the network variables and access the network variables. Um, But also, uh, there may be a new opportunity for research around uh, using anomaly detection to identify suspicious state update events in the network. Interesting stuff as always. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Jeff Schilling. He's the chief technology officer at Armor, a managed cloud security provider. Previous to joining Armor, he was the director of the global incident response practice for Dell SecureWorks. Mr. Schilling is also a retired U.S. Army colonel, having served 24 years active duty. His last military assignment was the director of the U.S. Army's Global Security Operations Center under the U.S. Army Cyber Command. Our conversation began with the Russian cyber threat, specifically their effect on the last U.S. national election. I think that at the end of the day, they were in a win-win situation when it came to the U.S. election. You know, if the Russians truly wanted to disrupt and undermine the credibility of our election process, I would say they achieved that and they would have achieved that no matter which side, whether the, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Clinton had won or President Trump had won. um, Their whole goal was to undermine the, the U.S.'s confidence in our election process and um, and and raise doubt to basically disrupt our national policy making. And, and I would say if I were to sit back and grade how effective they've been on that, I'd say they've been very effective. To me, it just feels like they were really just hoping to create chaos in our national system and, and keep us from doing uh, international policy development, because I think that there are a lot of policy initiatives, both that would be led by a Democratic led government as well as a Republican led government that would not admit the national interests of the Russians. And today what we have is, uh, is essentially a paralyzed government that's, uh, that's torn with mistrust on both sides. And, uh, and I'd say that they've been pretty effective. So what, what do you suppose an appropriate uh, response would be from the United States and from the rest of the world? 
you know, that's that's probably the hardest question, I think, to, to answer because, um, you know, the U.S. is always conducting cyber operations, um, is, is always ongoing. Every, every developed country, every G20 level country that has an organized government and organized military is conducting some level of cyber operations. Cyber operations are best conducted in, you know, when it doesn't get any press, when it doesn't get any, uh, any traction. So obviously there should be a counteroffensive going on that's happening behind closed doors. It may not necessarily just be cyber in related. You know, we have many elements of national power, whether it's economic, the whole uh, dime principle, the diplomatic, informational, military, and economic uh, national power you know, we should be using all those elements to put pressure on Rus- Russia to basically at least roll back their, their activities and their operational tempo against us. The second piece, you know, that we really need to do as a nation is we need to come come together and put this behind us. You know, no matter what element of the uh, political spectrum that you live on, um, at the end of the day, this was an attack on, on, the whole, on the whole American election process and governing process. And I think that we need to stop paralyzing ourselves, just put this behind us and, and move forward and go on with some of the, some of the policy making decisions that, uh, that we need to make that, that right now the government is pi- paralyzed in making. So uh, looking forward, um, how do we as a nation and, uh, and both the, uh, the government side and the private sector side, what are some of the best actions we need to take to protect ourselves from, from these sorts of things in the future? Well, I think, I think the first thing that we need is just, is just basically a mindset. You know, we need, we need people get into a cybersecurity mindset, everybody. Um, you know, we have tons of customers that uh, come to us because we provide uh, cloud security. You know, I, I talk to prospective customers all the time, as well as I go to conferences. And I would say that less than 10% of business owners and people that conduct business really, really deeply care about making sure they're doing the right things with cybersecurity. They just see it as an expense on the on the P&L. They see it as an L on the P&L. Hmm. And they really don't put a lot of investment. They put the minimal amount of investment to, to be compliant. So I think that's the first thing is we need a we need a complete mind reshape. And God knows we've had the uh, global incidents that should have given us that mind reset, but we still see um, events happen like some of the recent uh, major um, hacks and data breaches that we have are still still ongoing. Uh, One more thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, from your experience um, inside the Army's uh, SOC and uh, and with U.S. Army Cyber Command, can you give us a little window as to what it's like in there? What what do you wish people knew about uh, the men and women who are keeping those operations running? Um, first off, those are the two hardest jobs I've ever worked in my uh, in my uh, 28 year career. You know, uh, when I was working one incident response, when I was at uh, Joint Task Force Global Network Operations, where I ran the DoD Security and Operations Center, I worked for almost uh, 28 days straight, probably 16 to 17 hours a day, doing a global response to a uh, to a nation state actor. And so those 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 troops work incredibly hard. And the other thing is, is that I will tell you, our nation's secrets are secure on our classified networks, but there's so much good information on our unclassified networks that that's really where the department uh, struggles. You know, uh, someone asked me back in 2010, uh, you know, when I was running the uh, Army Cyber Command's uh, Security and Operations Center, um, they actually called it the uh, Army Cyber Information Intelligence Operations Center. What do you think we should do to, uh, to get the initiative back from the threat? 
And that's really how I ended up where I was because I, no one had ever asked me that question. They just always asked me how bad it is and, and what I knew. And, and I really think that the cloud and, and moving our, our data centers to the cloud is our opportunity to get ahead of the threat. And that's a whole nother podcast that we should do sometime <laughs> because I can tell you that there is very, I'm, you know, from 2010, I would say to about 2015, I was the only guy on a security panel saying that we needed to move to the cloud. Um, you know, now in 2015 to 2017, now I would say about half of security folks are now saying, you know what, you know, this is starting to make sense. I have a better ability to build a defendable architecture in the cloud, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still not there. I can tell you that, uh, you know, if anybody wants to know who's winning the cyber war, um, I will tell you that's classified, but, uh, but I, I can tell you the good guys are winning. That's Jeff Schilling from Armor. We'll have an extended version of this interview available exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.